Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Welcome to Mortification of Spin. My name is Carl Truman. I'm a professor at Grove City College in Western Pennsylvania, and I'm here with my usual co-hosts, uh, the Reverend Todd Pruitt, PCA pastor uh, uh, in Harrisonburg, Virginia, and Amy Bird, the housewife theologian. Today, we want to, to go a little bit down memory lane and then, and then look at a book that, that comments on something that this blog, this podcast was actually instrumental in starting, and that was the, the, the now notorious uh, internet debate of 2016 on the nature of the Trinity and the social implications of the doctrine of the Trinity for understanding male-female relations. Uh, for those who are newcomers to Mortification of Spin, uh, this was a, a vigorous discussion that was kicked off by a number of blog posts by our favorite tweet-fighting man, Liam Golliger, uh, published by Amy Bird on her section of the Mortification of Spin blog. Uh, the debate ran for, for some months and caused a veritable explosion in contributions on the internet. Well, recently a very good book has been published which goes to the heart of many of the issues that were of critical importance in that discussion. The book is entitled, The Son Who Learned Obedience, A Theological Case Against the Eternal Submission of the Son. And it's written by D. Glenn Butner, Jr., who is Assistant Professor of Theology and Christian Ministry at Sterling College in Kansas. And it's our very great pleasure to have uh, Glenn on the program today to discuss his book. Uh, welcome, Glenn. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Well, to, to sort of start off with a fairly softball complicated but softball question in a way. Uh, the title, The Son Who Learned Obedience, A Theological Case Against the Eternal Submission of the Son. Could you unpack for us the, the technicalities of that title and explain in, you know, in, in 20 words or less uh, why they are of such fundamental importance to the Christian faith? All right, well, I'll see what I can do in 20 words. <laughs> So the, the basic question behind this debate is, does Jesus submit simply during his human life as a result of the incarnation, um, or has he eternally submitted as the second divine person of the Trinity? And so the title draws on some imagery from Hebrews uh, to say that we should understand submission uh, as a byproduct of the incarnation and as human submission. Wow, you did it. Words. That was, oh, that's, that was good. That's remarkable. <laughs> Yeah, that was good. He needs to be a teacher. <laughs> Why has that even been an issue in evangelical theology in the last uh, 50 or 100 years? Um, Were these things not hammered out and established quite clearly uh, at the end of the 4th century, for example, yeah. in, uh, at the Council of Constantinople in 381? Um, in some sense, yes. In another sense, No. So certainly the basics of Trinitarian thought were hammered out by 381, one being, three persons, things like eternal generation. And yet I don't think the question of Christ's obedience was as central into some later councils, like particularly the Third Council of Constantinople, 
um, when this council starts thinking in the 600s about the wills of Christ incarnate. And that's a council that isn't necessarily taught as thoroughly in intro seminary courses. Um, So there are a lot of evangelical pastors and I think even theologians who don't understand the theology behind that as clearly. And that's really where we first get to serious theological discussion about the divine wills um, or will in any depth. So this debate. Um, And so I think this emerges recently as an evangelical debate for a couple of different reasons. Uh, A number of authors, first of all, are are trying to establish a biblical theology of the Trinity. Um, And I think they, it's great to be biblical, but I think they emphasize the Bible to the detriment of tradition. And so end up needing to sort of recreate the basic terminological framework. Um, And so you wind up with the claim that it's different roles or functions um, and submission that differentiate the persons. And about the same time, there's sort of the gender wars going on, what, you know, egalitarianism versus complementarianism. And the idea that there's submission in an equal trinity becomes a powerful tool among certain complementarian groups to defend their position. That endorsing a sort of functional subordination of women doesn't mean that they're unequal by nature. Um, So I think those two sources make this pretty central in a lot of evangelical discussion. And eventually it had to blow up and, and... Thank you all for bringing that to the surface and not leaving it in academic circles. <laughs> um, Glenn and, and Carl, you, you feel free to weigh in on this too as a historian, but there's a couple of key terms that I think confuse a lot of evangelicals. You know, when we talk about, for instance, biblicism versus confessionalism, when we say, hey, you know, we, we don't want to be, quote, biblicists, oftentimes um, evangelicals hear that as, well, we don't want to rely too much on the Bible. And that, that's actually the opposite of, of, of what we're saying. But, but the terms that are used oftentimes will confuse um, a lot of laypersons, even pastors as well. So, Glenn and, and Carl, feel free to weigh in as well. Help us distinguish between w- what we mean when we talk about biblicism and confessionalism and why is, why is it so important? Why do contemporary Christians need to take seriously the first four centuries of, of the church and, and what was established in those ecumenical councils. Does that make sense? Sure, yeah. yeah. Um, and I'd actually take a step back, and, and this is kind of where I go in my book, in distinguishing between biblical theology and systematic theology, um, where biblical theology is surveying the content of the different books of the Bible to synthesize what is clearly taught. And I argue that there are certain things that are crystal clear. So, for example, Jesus is human. Um, just reading the Gospels, reading the epistles, it's pretty hard to deny that. That's a straightforward question. The Bible is the final authority there, so I can't imagine theologically you could debate that point. Mm -hmm. There are other issues that naturally arise from reading the Bible. Um, How can he be human and divine? And there's not a nice 1 Corinthians chapter 17 where Paul walks us through that. So that's where systematic theology comes in, trying to deploy reason and philosophy and tradition to make sense of how what's clearly taught in the Bible might be true. Mm-hmm. So it's profoundly biblical, but it's not something necessarily explicitly in the Bible. Mm-hmm. So that, that sort of plays into um, biblicism versus confessionalism. I think everything should be biblical. I believe the Bible is the top authority. Uh, it's the only certain authority. Um, and yet, if you remain with what is only taught in the Bible um, and don't follow the, those questions that naturally arise, you can wind up with a biblicism 
that can't adequately answer questions like, how many wills did Christ have? Mm -hmm. Um, Does the Son eternally submit to the Father? Whereas there are a number of confessions from the history of the church um, that arise from generations and centuries of theological reflection that do give very clear answers that fit the Bible. Um, And so that's where I believe confessionalism is extremely important. Um, I don't have the skill to answer all of those questions myself in one lifetime. But I have confessions I can turn to mm. that are profoundly biblical that can guide me in those questions. Mm. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of times the assumption in, in a more biblicist framework is, you know, we're opening up scripture, which is our authority, and then the role of the Holy Spirit is to enlighten us and illuminate God's word to us, um, which is, is certainly happening. But um, do you think that there's almost a a blind spot of not seeing the work of the Holy Spirit in helping us pass down an orthodox confession of the faith through our creeds and confessions in the last 2,000 years? Um, I think that's a really good point, actually. And when I teach my intro theology classes, students often have no framework of tradition. And one of the things that I say is, if God is providential and God wants us to know him, then I think it's reasonable to assume that the Spirit has guided his people to some degree of truth throughout history. Now, I don't believe that's infallible and inerrant truth like we see in the Bible. We can open any church history book and find error. Mm -hmm. But I think if we don't allow for that Spirit's role there, that we're sort of undermining the work of God. Yeah, I think the whole idea of doctrinal development is something that Protestants are instinctively uncomfortable with, right? right. but actually can be set on a pretty sound footing. And the only thing I would add to what Glenn has said there is that there's what I think the, the Catholic theologian Bernard Lonergan calls a dialectical nature to doctrinal development in that the debates often involve setting models over against each other. Uh, and in, in doing that, you find out the strengths and weaknesses and the different ones, and you'll come to some kind of resolution. Say, you know, you have a model that overemphasizes the humanity of Christ over against one that overemphasizes the divinity of Christ. Net result is X, and X, whatever that resolution is, then sets the terms for future discussions uh, about Christ. So it becomes important to, to understand the dynamics of historical theological debate in order to understand why the church thinks the way she does on key mm-hmm. issues. The two wills of Christ, I think, is the classic. If you mm-hmm. say to students, how many wills does Christ have? Your average first year is instinctively going to say one. Right. Hopefully, by the end of a basic patristics course, they'll understand why, as counterintuitive and weird as it sounds, the answer is actually two. Yeah, yeah. And so, let me uh, just in in summing up this, because again, I, I I have corresponded with so many people who have this kind of viscerally negative reaction to uh, talking about quote biblicism, you know, in a, in a negative way. We, so, so you know, what we're what we're trying to say is that biblicism is basically an approach that says, I've got my Bible. And I'm, I'm equipped, you know, to understand. So it's, it's kind of a me and my Bible approach, whereas confessionalism says, no, uh, we're reading our Bible um, in the company of 2000 years of, of, of faithful witnesses grounded in what those early theologians, imperfect, Glenn, as you, you know, referenced earlier, we don't look at any of the writings of even the best of the fathers and say they were inerrant. But nevertheless, there was something really important going on in those first four centuries. Um, and, and so confessionalism says uh, it's us and our Bible. And by us, we mean 2000 years of this cloud of witnesses and, and we read it together. And so if I'm coming up with something novel, I, I, I need to be suspect of, of my novelty. 
Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And what do we lose then from our Orthodox confession in embracing ESS? Um, quite a lot, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the debate has been centered on the Trinity, and, and rightly so, since it is a question about the Trinity. Um, but one thing that I'm concerned about is the ramifications of a change in the doctrine of the Trinity on other doctrines. Mm-hmm. So there are sort of two directions you can go with ESS or EFS or whatever acronym you'd like to use. Um, for the son to submit to the father, either you would need to say that they have different wills, which seems clearest to me. And I see evidence in a lot of the early writings of the folks defending this, that that's what they seem to be saying. Um, well, if will is a property of one of the divine persons or of each divine person, that will spill over into Christology, where you talk about um, how there's one person and two natures in Christ. The other approach that you can take is to say, well, there's really only one divine will, um, according to the one divine being and nature, um, but there are different modes of willing. Um, And I'm not quite sure what is even meant by that. I've not seen a clear explanation, but if we grant that you might be able to explain what that means, that actually has big ramifications in uh, the doctrine of the atonement. So something like Anselm's satisfaction theory is a delicate balancing act of thinking about the divine will, the human will, obedience, uh, non-obligatory gift. Um, How do we fit these parts together to understand how Christ paid my debts? Um, Well, as soon as you start changing your understanding of obedience uh, and gift in the Godhead, uh, it's going to spill over into the atonement. Um, So those are two big areas where just beyond the basics of Trinitarian thought, you're going to have an effect. And then those will domino into areas like sanctification and justification and on and on and on. And that was part of, of what I think the three of us were, were trying to get people to see um, during this debate was that this isn't just some minor esoteric issue here. Right. Um, you know, that as you just articulated and as you articulate well in your Very book, well, yeah. this has clear implications in our understanding of uh, the person of Christ and, and then the work of Christ. Very clear implications. And when you read deeper into some of the popularizers of the of the doctrine of the eternal subordination of the Son, um, you see how their understanding of the atonement, they, they either do one of two things, I noticed. Either they're just really inconsistent with their theology and, and what they write about the atonement, which affirms historic Christianity, is entirely inconsistent with what they're writing about the persons uh, of, of Trinity, or or there are some troubling things in their doctrine of the atonement. And and so this is not just some corner of the academic world. And I think that's, you know, we talked about that a lot when Amy, the troublemaker, first published Liam, the troublemaker's um, articles was, um, is that this had been kind of just an academic discussion for a long time, but but we were noticing how it had moved very oh. much into the popular writing. Very popular, much. But it, I mean, it, and it has direct implications for worship, it seems to me. First of mm. all, how you understand the basic cry of praise, Jesus is Lord. Yes. But also there's that principle that worship, we don't just worship God for what he has done. Mm-hmm. We also worship him, we contemplate him for who he is. Mm-hmm. And it's that who he is section, I think, that is, you know, on the one hand, yes, this has ramifications for what God has done. It also has implications for who he is. Right. That impacts how we understand 
worship to be. I mean, the, the fourth century fathers are very good on, it seems to me, on, on the contemplation of God is key mm-hmm. to worship. And that's one of the dynamics driving the Trinitarian debate. Oh, yeah. I mean, Who Glenn, is the God that we contemplate? <laughs> right. Glenn goes after, you know, how it affects simplicity, omnipotence, mm-hmm. immutability, eternality, omniscience, like all these important attributes of who God is. Right, right. right. What would you say to this, Glenn, though, that one of the problems that that the orthodox have on this discussion is the position's counterintuitive. I mean, I've drawn a comparison with the doctrine of Scripture, for example. People are wandering around saying Scripture contains error. The conservative church rises up because that's instinctively, intuitively problematic. When you start talking about, well, God is three and God is one, and uh, there's one will in this God that is three persons, that's counter that's counterintuitive and, and and makes the case for the trinity difficult at a popular level how, how would you address or think about that certainly um it certainly is counterintuitive partly the word person used in the trinity is very different in meaning in antiquity than what we mean by person today partly if you look at the bible there are clear stories of jesus you know saying not my will but your will in the prayer in gethsemane and so just straightforward you would think this must be true of Jesus eternally. He eternally submits to the Father's will. Um, so I can certainly see the sensibilities behind it, and I can understand why this has made its way into popular level resources. And I've, I've heard from folks across the country who've written me, this is showing up in my biblical counseling materials. This was at a pastor's conference, you know. Um, but I think um, one of the problems is um, sometimes we fail to recognize how complicated an infinite God actually is. And so you can read a couple of verses that imply um, that Jesus submits and just say, well, that must be true eternally. There's a lot of stuff written in the Bible about who the eternal triune God is, and we really need to incorporate all of this data, which is, once again, why the best Trinitarian theology takes generations to develop and not a couple of years as you write a book. Wow. Uh, so it's very counterintuitive. It's very challenging, but... I still think the best way of making sense of the Bible is actually counterintuitive in a lot of ways. Yeah. Back to the worship element too. I feel like those who kind of are on the outskirts of the debate, like noticing that, okay, this is kind of important, but it's also complicated. Like you're saying counterintuitive and um, I have a lot to learn, but I'm just going to sit back and uh, kind of wait and see who wins <laughs> kind, <laughs> of, kind of way. I'm not really going to sink into this. And um, could you maybe adding on to what you were saying, like this data that we find about God in the Bible, I mean, it's also discovery. And, and it leads us to, to doxology, to praise him for who he is. And, and it does affect things like counseling and, and women's ministries and children's ministries and, and all these things. Um, could you speak a little bit about, you know, the practicality, <laughs> um, the relevance of this doctrine of God and the obedience of Christ? One thing that, well, I mean, there are a number of different ways you could go, but one thing that strikes me that is at stake is if Christ is offering a human obedience here, and if that human obedience is in harmony with the divine will that Christ has because of his divine nature, um, then that is a sign of what humanity can be. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is a sign of what, by God's grace, I will one day become at the resurrection. I certainly won't have the divine nature. I won't be a divine person, but I can have a will in complete conformity with the divine will. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's great news to me. That drives me to doxology. Um, that drives me to realize the depths of my own sin and seeing how far short I am of where I was created to be and where one day I will go. Um, and so it's very easy to get 
tied down in debates about inseparable operations or something that sounds very soul killing. Um, <laughs> and, and I have a tendency to get in the, the philosophical realm too much, but it, if, if I do a, a good job in writing this, or if, if folks do a good job in applying this at a pastoral level, it should inspire us to worship. I think you're definitely right. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, it's yeah. interesting. One of the, one of the, major popularizers of this doctrine of the eternal submission of the son and and someone i think got very angry at us a couple summers ago but um just to your point um and and points being made here is is that one of the things he he writes you mentioned uh, inseparable operations but one of the things this theologian writes is that it's inappropriate to pray um to to uh you know the holy spirit or or, or to Jesus, because their role is not to deal with prayer. You know, you only pray to the Father. And, you know, and this is a, an influential systematic theologian at a major, major uh, seminary who, who actually right. says, you know, well, you know, the Son and the Spirit don't deal with answering prayers. That's only the Father. And so that gets into, again, the, the devote, you know, this has a direct impact on, on our devotion, sure. on our life as Christians. Yeah, yeah, as if that question has never been asked in church history and adequately answered. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Let me ask this. Let me ask this. So, so we have uh, there's 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 various places to go to in the Bible if we want to, you know, work through issues of how husbands and wives are to relate to to each other. There's passages in Scripture that help give us guidance there. There's passages of Scripture that help give us guidance in terms of of how the church is led and and what roles various people have, but. One of the things that we see with with our our, our brothers that that advance the eternal submission of the Son is that they go to uh, the doctrine of God. They go to the person of God and 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 their understanding of of the persons of the Trinity to answer questions about how husbands and wives relate. What's the problem with appealing to the doctrine of the Trinity to deal with questions of you know how husbands and wives relate? How, how would you describe? What's the problem with that? I see a lot of this in social ethics and theology recently, and um, I just sort of happened to be in the right place in the right time falling into this debate. I actually did my doctoral work on economic ethics, believe it or not. Hmm. Um, so I've seen a lot of people saying, well, based on the Trinity, this is the sort of economy we should have to be the ideal society. People will argue for capitalism, for communism, for some sort of mixture of the two. But ultimately, the Trinity is not something to be used for a social agenda. The Trinity is something to be worshipped, and everything Mm. else is to be used and able to help us worship the Trinity. And I think this is a similar phenomenon, the Trinitarian retrieval of the 20th century um, and the concern of many theologians to make their ideas concrete and applicable to daily life has led to connecting the Trinity to marriage roles. that might be justified if there's a biblical precedent for this. Um, and sometimes people appeal to First uh, Corinthians chapter 11, um, that God is the head of Christ and man is the head of woman. There's the whole debate about what headship means, but even setting that aside, that title Christ there, I still read as a human title, not an eternal divine title. So I don't think there's biblical precedent for this. But what ends up happening is if you take a complementarian read of something like Ephesians 5, um, the husband is like Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, the wife is like the church. So there is this call to submission. Mm-hmm. Um, and then this call for the husband to sacrifice as Christ sacrificed. So he would presumably be the one suffering um, mm-hmm. and the one sacrificing and giving up. In this Trinitarian analogy, um, the husband is like the father and the wife right. is like the son. And suddenly it's the wife who is asked to do the sacrificing. Um, so she has no power and she potentially is suffering. Yeah. yeah. And I don't think there's a automatic path down from EFS to, you know, abuse or anything like that. But I do think 
if that's what starts being preached in our congregation, it's more susceptible to misinterpretation and misapplication in that way. Yeah, I, I wonder if, if some of this is driven by, or you alluded, sort of hinted at it, the, the need to make doctrines practical. Mm. that there has to be some payoff. And it, again, to go back to the ancient church, one of the things that I think the fathers had that we've sort of lost is that contemplation is in and of itself worthwhile. And you, and you see it in Aquinas in the Middle Ages, that the contemplation of God's being in and of itself is transformative. It, it elevates our minds and our spirits. And to me, I mean, Amy and I were at the Paideia Conference in Orlando last week and heard a great lecture by Blair Smith on Gregor of Nazianzus, which mm-hmm. was one of the most moving lectures I heard for, for many really years. Good, yeah. And he basically made the point that Gregory's mind just explodes as he's trying to get his head around the Trinity and it drives him to worship. And that's something we've lost. I mean, when was the last mm-hmm. time you went to church and the mystery of God Mm-hmm. drove you to your knees. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're all driven to our knees by what God's done for us. But what about the incomprehensibility of the triune God? When did that cause us to shut up mm-hmm. and bow down in contemplation? What do you think about that, Glenn? Is that a reasonable comment? Uh, I, I think it's a, a good challenge, even, even to me, as I teach and write and try and make sense of that, which ultimately we can't fully understand. Um, it should drive us to mystery and awe and worship. Yeah. And I think that's, I mean, I think that's why when you read, for instance, Gregory or Maximus, the confessor and some of these great theologians is they, they viewed theological error as impiety. Um, it, it wasn't merely um, an intellectual exercise for them, but, but the intellectual was bound together with the doxological so that error represented a kind of impiety or ungodliness. Because uh, as you were saying, Carl, the mere contemplation of of the triune god was was an exercise in in worship and yeah. devotion it was quote practical just yeah. in terms of 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 worship and devotion i'm struck at the end of aquinas's life he has this powerful experience where he lays down his pen he doesn't write anything else afterwards because he says what i've i've seen mm. makes everything else i've written seem like straw i didn't mean it was straw but it seemed like straw in comparison and i think yeah contemplation it, without going down the mystical route that's right. how it tends to manifest mm-hmm. itself in our circles when you talk about contemplation contemplation grounded in the objective reality of the trinity yeah. is something we need to recapture mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. certainly well as we're wrapping things up i just wanted your opinion on you know do you think this is going away anytime soon <laughs> <laughs> um it's hard to tell. Um, I, I do see a lot of tension between, on the one hand, the, the Trinitarian thought of a lot of these figures supporting eternal submission um, and their views on Christology or the atonement. Um, in those areas, I'm more likely to encounter something more orthodox. But then in the doctrine of God, I tend to find things that are not in line with the confessions again, a, a revisioning of simplicity and eternality. And yeah. So I think there's sort of this division in evangelical systematic theology right now, this incompatibility and tension. And um, I think the future sort of depends on which side of this division ends up lasting out. Do these folks end up modifying their Christology or do they end up um, returning to something more pro-Nicene in their doctrine of the Trinity? And I hope it's the latter, but if it's the former, we could have a very long-standing problem here. Yeah, yeah and we yeah. haven't seen any retractions um, of previous <laughs> yeah. writings. Yeah, the, the closest thing there's been is, is from one of these men kind of saying, okay, I, I, I guess 
the doctrine of eternal generation. I guess I can buy that now. I mean, that's been the closest thing there's been. Right. But but it's I'm I'm encouraged. Retractions. Oh no, retraction. No no no. Um, I'm I'm encouraged by the by by what I'm seeing as as a rise in interest in classical theism. Yes, and, that's and I am, real exciting to yeah, see. I am seeing that, and as soon as I saw the title of your book online, I, I thought, "Oh goodness, okay, this is this is one more brick in the wall here in terms mm-hmm. of, of what to be encouraged by." Because I'm, I'm seeing both in in Baptist circles and Presbyterian circles um, a rising interest in and commitment to uh, what, what you call pro Nicene uh, mm-hmm. Christianity. So that's an encouraging sign. But again, the the main popularizers of the doctrine of the eternal submission of the Son, I see no retraction yet. And I, I hope we will, but it's, it's not looking good at this point. <laughs> and, and as long as someone like me is writing a book against this, and I'm a nobody at a, a small school that I love in Kansas, but I have a very small audience, and then you have the best-selling evangelical systematic theology um, and names yes. as big as seminaries, as long as they're on the other side, it's going to be an uphill battle. But so. here's the good news, Glenn. You've just been on mortification of spin. I was thinking the same thing, Todd. <laughs> same thing. And 50 million listeners. <laughs> and you know the biggest thing in North America. We, we are huge in Luxembourg. So yeah. it's, it's going to be. Well, our, our guest today has been uh, D. Glenn Butler, uh, Butner, I'm sorry, of, of Sterling College in Sterling, Kansas. Um, I, I, as a, an adopted Kansan, uh, have an immediate affinity for Dr. Butner. And uh, uh, we, we would encourage you to. Uh, to get his book, The Son Who Learned Obedience, a theological case against the eternal submission of the Son. It's extremely well done, um, very thoughtful. It's ironic, but very clear. It's not a scary 500-page book, but he does an amazing amount. He covers an amazing amount of territory in, in what is you know, a t- a basically a 200-page book. Uh, and so we would encourage you um, to get this, to add it to your reading. And um, if you would like to possibly win a copy, then all you need to go do is uh, visit our website, mortificationofspin.org, and uh, you'll see a place where you can register to uh, win a copy of this excellent book by Dr. Butner, The Son Who Learned Obedience. And while you're there, we are a listener-supported podcast, and we would love for you to consider making any contribution that you're able to make. But please visit our website, enter to win a copy of this excellent book. And again, uh, Glenn, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me, and thanks to everyone who's listening. Yeah, we hope that your book gets a a very wide uh, reading. It's worth reading, and it's an excellent excellent contribution uh to uh to the debate so greetings to everybody in the great middle of this nation of ours it is not flyover country it is uh it's a beautiful place to be and we're glad you're at sterling and we hope that uh, right. the Lord will, will continue uh, to give you um uh, uh, influence in in what you're doing so thank you so much for joining us today our listeners and uh, we will look forward uh to talking with you again Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. To read more on hard-hitting topics like this, visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. 
And be sure to listen next time when Carl, Todd, and Amy talk about... Uh, as a Christian, I, I look at uh, embryo in the womb and, and say, that is a not a potential person, but that's a person of potential. Everything that is necessary for the formation of a living, breathing, interacting human being is present. That interview is next time. Join us then. Here's what concerns me about you, Amy, is that <laughs> you um, express great concern over aggression. You know, that's part of toxic masculinity. And yet... I just said aggression's not a virtue, a masculine virtue. See, I disagree. Aggression? Do well, you see how it's being played out all over the place? Hey. Have you followed me? Well, well I, I, would say, I would say this, that there are times when our women need us to be aggressive what kind of aggression are you talking about though i mean if you just say aggression is like a masculine well what i find is a masculine virtue when my woman gets out of line she needs me to be aggressive not 100 all right you know amy um in, in your typical womanly style um, you have, of course, you've started to go shrill. <laughs> and, um, I cannot believe you. <laughs>